Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. But there are, there are people who define their very identity with their sexual appetite. Sometimes they do it with, I don't know, letters of the alphabet. In any group of people, even those in a church, there is opportunity for misunderstanding. The early church in the city of Corinth, described to us in the New Testament of the Bible, was a perfect example. There were concepts that they didn't seem to clearly understand and the Apostle Paul went to great efforts to clear things up for them. Centuries later, we have the benefit of Paul's letters to the church at Corinth to bring clarity to our own thinking. Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues a series of messages looking directly at the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Let's join him now for part seven of the Corinthian series, Do You Not Know? As has been expressed already in Australia today, it's Father's Day. I'm not quite sure why September, I don't know, because in other parts of the world, America has it in June. I'm not sure, I think Britain has it in in May or March or something. So I don't know. But anyway, it is, as many people would know, the second most important day of the year. I I noticed a distinct lack of men getting behind me on that one. Um, Anyway, a bit late. (laughs) And so in line with my change of heart about not going anywhere controversial or saying anything that's, you know, sort of like... Today, I'm just going to go, just teach the Bible, just stay on track, just stay in the middle lane. So we're just going to do nothing controversial. We're just going to be looking at what Paul says about sex, marriage and gender. That's just, just, that's, just keep it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, as we have often said, is the map to the landmines of life. Lord, as we look at the map, as we look at what your word has to say about how we can flourish, how we can do life well, I pray, Father, that you would help us to hear your voice, to receive your word, and to be able to leave this place today and leave this time together today, understanding how we can do just that. So I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing through Paul's series to the Corinthians and this is a big deal because there's lots of churches in the New Testament that are written to one Ephesus is written to by far the most and oftentimes the reason these letters are written is because there were problems happening or about to happen in that church and fortunately for us Paul gives solutions to problems that were happening that we can avoid and we can learn from. Corinthians, I've mentioned uh, that we're doing an exposition of Corinthians, which means we're going through it as Paul unpacks it. And by doing that, we're actually able to get the flow of thought and to be able to understand why he says what, what he's about to say. To understand that, as we look at this epistle, we get the clear impression from Paul both by what he tells us was a problem in the Corinthian church and what we can surmise were problems. The Corinthians had some misunderstandings about some really 
uh, hot button issues, and they're particularly hot button for us today. And the first misunderstanding they had, which is a common thing even today, and this is the thing that, that amazes me as we look at these issues, just how relevant they are for us today. Because firstly, this first one that Paul mentions several times in, even in the opening chapter, and I'll give you an example of that in a moment, one of the things that Paul's going to do, and if perhaps if you had a, a mother like I had, she would say sarcasm is the lowest form of wit. And that tells you a lot about my nature, that she had to say that to me so often, and I remember it still to this day. But here we find Paul, throughout this epistle, being very sarcastic. And that gives people like me who have the gift of sarcasm great comfort is there anyone else who has that gift oh yeah there's a there's a, there's a few notice no women put their hand up it's all the blood. anyway so <clears throat> so here paul is addressing almost in chapter one just putting all the problems on the table but in a bit of a sarcastic way so for example this problem grace the corinthian church misunderstood grace as we will see in a moment they were excusing clearly wrong behaviour. And as uh, Trevor mentioned this morning, there are some things that, for example, Jesus didn't say that some people go, well, if he didn't talk about it, then it's okay. Well, Jesus never talked about wife beating. He never talked, about, you know, the list goes on. But that doesn't mean we ignore what the Bible says about how husbands are to treat their wives. So Paul here in the opening chapter is going to say things like this because of their misunderstanding about grace this is verse four and five i give thanks to my god always for you because of the what so, somebody help me out because of the grace of god that was given you in christ jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and here's the other thing they had a problem with knowledge because the false teachers were claiming Oh, yeah, well, Paul knows a thing or two, but he doesn't know what we know. We have the deep knowledge. And so Paul, in this opening verse of Corinthians, has basically said, uh, I always thank God for you because of the grace given you. But what they, what they were about to experience as Paul goes through Corinthians is a pretty major correction on how they understood grace. I would say we today have a, also have a problem with grace. Firstly, some people think that if a church has rules, and we've mentioned this before, that means they're legalistic. And that's not legalism. Rules are not legalism. And parents need to understand this. The best way to parent your child is to have clear rules and be consistent with those rules. And all those who are children who have parents that enforce rules said, yeah, I thought so. And so, <laughs> and, but, it, but it is. And when you look at the way God is a father to us he gives clear rules and he's consistent and this was one of the per first pieces of advice that kim and my pastor um bob smith gave to us when we were about to become parents he said be clear and be consistent and we just thought that'll do that'll that'll be our kind of our our rule for parenting so paul here in telling them that they had a problem with grace and knowledge we'll see in a moment Today, we have a problem as well. I mentioned some people think rules are legalism. It's not. It's when you trust what you do and 
and state that if you don't do it, you're not saved. That's legalism. Legalism is when you're trusting in the rules to save you. That's the difference. If you don't keep these rules, you're not really... That's legalism. But to have rules is not legalism. But the same thing also, and I've mentioned this, and I'll keep saying it. If you haven't heard me say it, you'll hear, you're going to hear me say it now. I want us all to die well. Not in this moment, please. <laughs> but when you reach those final beats of your heart, the final brain waves happening in your mind, I want you to die in the confidence that you are saved because you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Not because of what you've done or haven't done. Does that make you a Christian? Now, I say that because really, when I was a young pastor and, and I'd be at the, the deathbed of a much senior saint, an older person, an older Christian, and they as they were fading, they could talk to me in, in this lucid moment, this, the worry and the anxiety they had about saying, I don't know if I have done enough for God to accept me. That's legalism. That's works. That's trusting in something other than what Christ has done for you. Here's what we need to understand about grace. What Christ did for us on the cross, and we sang about it this morning, is he took your sin, all the sin that you've ever committed, will ever commit, and he took it on himself, and he paid the price. When Christ's mortal body died on the cross, he went into another dimension, outside of this dimension, the dimension that we might call eternity, and atoned for our sins for eternity. It wasn't the amount of time that Christ was on the cross dying. It was, it was who was dying and where he went with your sin when he died. He took it into eternity. It's dealt with. So here's the confidence we have. When God gives us something we don't deserve, it's called grace. And that's what salvation is. It's a gift. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. The Corinthians also had a problem with knowledge in that they believed there was this extra special knowledge that could be achieved, enlightenment, if you will, that the Gnostics began to develop into the second century AD that began to infiltrate Christianity. It began to see that material things like flesh and human bodies were evil and, and that's why we had to rid ourselves of our human bodies and become just the spirit beings that we supposedly were created to be. But Paul is going to, well, we're going to see that this morning. This is not what the Bible teaches at all. Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This is sarcasm, because he doesn't think these false teachers possess any worthwhile knowledge at all, really. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Some in the Corinthian church also had a misunderstanding about sexuality. That's pretty clear and it'll become even clearer as we look at this second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul has said in the, the section we looked at in, in the last installment of 1 Corinthians, this verse that got Israel Folau in all kinds of trouble when he tweeted this verse, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor men who practice homosexuality. And I pointed out, this is talking about men who practice homosexuality, not those who may even be listening to me right now who battle with same-sex attraction, which is not the same as practicing homosexuality. And Paul goes on to say that in the Corinthian church, every one of those categories of sin was represented by people in the Corinthian church. Paul says, and such were some of you, but you've been washed and cleansed and sanctified and saved by Christ. Some in the Corinthian church also had a misunderstanding of marriage. They were teaching that marriage was wrong. They were saying you shouldn't get married. This is particularly these Gnostic type people who are saying pleasures of the flesh corrupted the soul. Some in the Corinthian church misunderstood what love really was. And as I go through this list that Paul's addressing to the Corinthians, I think, man, oh man, Paul, you could be writing this today. There are people today who clearly do not understand what love is. And if we were to sum up what Paul has to say, which we will look at later, that love is essentially self-sacrificing of yourself for another's highest good. And the way I hear people talk about it is love is what someone can do for me that fulfills my desires and lusts and wants. And that's not love at all. So the Corinthian church not only had those misunderstandings, they also had problems. And the problems that they had were their internal problems. Firstly, disunity, which led to divisions within the church. There were factions within the church. And Paul has had something to say about this. And, and we read in verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, the Apostle Peter, or I follow Christ. The other problem wasn't just a misunderstanding. This was a problem in the church of sexual immorality because Paul mentions it so frequently through this epistle. There was a problem, and little wonder there was a problem because the backdrop to this picture is the, the ruins of ancient Corinth, and above Corinth was... Uh, that was Acro-Corinth, which means the hill, Mount Corinth. And on top of that hill was the temple to Aphrodite, where there were some 1,000 temple prostitutes for men to come and frequent and leave their offerings there. And so sexual immorality was a problem in the Corinthian church. So now we're going to have a look at the last part of chapter 6, where Paul is beginning to address some of these problems and misunderstandings. And we see in 1 Corinthians 6... Paul uses this expression, do you not know? Now, can you hear the sarcasm in that about these false teachers who are claiming to have all this knowledge? And Paul says, but don't you know this? Don't you know this? And so we kick off from verse 12 where Paul says, all things are lawful for me. And that's what grace will allow you to do. All things are lawful for you because you are not saved because you cleaned your act up. And today I'm going to invite people who perhaps don't have the cleanest act to come to Christ and let him clean your act up. And it's nothing you can do in yourself. You cannot do it. The Bible describes everyone who is not in Christ as spiritually dead. And that's not Princess Bride dead. That's really dead. Because in Ephesians chapter 2 verses one and on it says we who were dead in trespasses and sins and the picture that I've 
that I get is of someone who's drowned and they're not just bobbing up and down and if you just give them a couple of pumps on the chest you'll get them back no no these people have died they've sunk to the bottom there's mollusks growing over them there's algae there's barnacles there's they're dead that's how dead we were spiritually before we came to Christ and Christ has lifted us up out of the water put us on the deck of the ship cleaned us up and breathed life back into us that's what it means to become a Christian and you cannot do that yourself but what you can do by the grace of God is when he calls you up from the bottom you hear his voice your response is save me Lord that's his grace even allowing you to do that that's grace all things are lawful for me but not all things are helpful all things are lawful for me but I will not be dominated by anything now here Paul is actually giving a principle that the Corinthians clearly didn't get or understand when he was there and that is this the principle of Christian ethics in guiding how we behave and live so I remember going through youth group and there would be the, the, often the senior pastor would be called in to give the talk on dating. And sometimes the questions would come from some of my fellow youth group members at the time when I was a teen and early 20s. They, they would ask questions like this. Okay, in dating, how far can we go? Like, what kind of question is that? You know what kind of question that is. Especially you with people over here. You all know. So... <laughs> And the problem with the question is, it's asking how far can you go until you've gone too far? Then that's in, but one step back and it's not. But if you understand what Paul is saying here, this concept of Christian ethics, so I need to explain this to you so that we get it. You see, there's a way to determine what's right and wrong. The first, the first way we do this is called morality. Morality is, it asks this question, is it right? Is this right? If it's not right, what is it? Wrong. wrong. Thank you, Jack. I didn't see your lips move. I did see Josiah's move. But so it's wrong. All right. That's one layer. The next layer on top of that is called ethics. And ethics asks a different question. It doesn't ask if it's right or wrong because that's what morality does. So something could be right. But now ethics is going to ask another question. Is it wise? Now, Jack, if it's not wise, what is it? Unwise. Thank you very much. That's exactly right. <laughs> so now you've got right or wrong. Well, it's right. Okay, next thing that we might use is ethics. Is it wise or unwise? Now, so in other words, you can do something right, but it may not be wise to do it. And there's lots of examples like that. But then there, for the Christian, there's another layer on top of morality and ethics. And that's called Christian ethics. Because our rule for living is different. The ultimate guide is, it asks this question, is it loving? Josiah, what if it's not loving? What is it? Unloving. Unloving. Thank you. It wouldn't be loving. In other words... What Josiah is saying is it would be selfish because love is sacrificial love done for the highest good of another. 
And that's Christian ethics. And Paul is using that standard to say, yeah, okay, you may not be doing anything immoral, but are you doing what is beneficial for the other person? All right, this means that just because something is not necessarily sin, it doesn't mean that it's good, it doesn't mean that it's wise, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's loving. Just because it's not necessarily sin. So, in our Q&A last week, we were asked, I was asked the question, what is sin? Where did it come from? Who invented it? Did God invent it? Well, here's where we understand this. Sin is actually an abuse of something that God had designed for a good purpose. Remember when God created everything, Genesis 1? Just before he created mankind, he looked at what he created and he said, it's good. When he created mankind, especially after he created woman, he looked at creation and he said, it's very good. That's everything he made. Everything he made was very good. But what has the enemy done? Corrupted it, abused it, taken something that was originally designed for a good purpose and distorted it, made it sin. Paul says in the next verse here, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. This is going to be an important point in his argument here. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Did anyone see the link between those two statements? The food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, but don't be sexually immoral. Where did that come from? Because both of these things, we'll see in a moment, share something very, very similar and very strong as a drive in, in people. So it says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So what, where's he going with this? The Apostle Paul, in doing what he's saying here in verse 13, he's, he is identifying two of the strongest appetites in every human being. Food and sex. And both of them can be abused. Both of them can be abused. Our identity, now th- this is, I-, I just want you to get this. Your sexual drive is an appetite. Your desire to eat, especially if I preach really long and we go over time and it's nearly lunchtime, we'll, we'll see who claims they haven't got this drive. We all have. I'm looking forward to my... Anyone looking forward... Any fathers looking forward to their lunch today? All right, Jeff. Jeff and and a couple others are. So I'll try and be quick. But get this. There are some people that define who they are as a human being by their appetite. And not necessarily their appetite for food. Their appetite for the type of sex they want. And they feel it's such a strong desire. They feel it's the... Thing that identifies them oh yeah you look at me like I'm kidding you look at me like oh Andrew what planet are you on who on earth would do that hear how I'm being sarcastic see it comes natural <sighs> I told you <laughs> but there are there are people who define their very identity with their sexual appetite sometimes they do it with I don't know letters of the alphabet our identity as human beings, is not determined by our appetites. 
If you want me to, you want to write that down, I'll sign it for you after the service. Our identity as a human being is not designed to be determined by our appetites. What we do with our bodies, the Apostle Paul says in this verse, especially when it comes to our identification with our appetites, is meant everything we do with our bodies is meant to glorify the Lord. That's what it says in verse 13. The body is, meant, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Everything the Christian does, Christian ethics, is we do to the glory of God. That right there answers the question, should a Christian date a non-Christian? It doesn't fulfill the Christian ethic. Because everything you do is to glorify God. Everything you do with your body is to glorify the Lord. This is going to cause, I hope, some people to realise we are, we are created by God to have a body. We are created by God to be immortal beings, which means that once we're created, we will, we will never cease to exist. But even after this life, we are going to have a body. Paul right here is hitting the false teachers right between the eyes who said the body's nothing. You, and so you had these Gnostic teachers, that's a silent G, G-N-O-S. It comes from the Greek word gnosis. And you, and, and I'm, in Greek, there's no silent letters, so it actually is pronounced gnosis. These Gnostic teachers were saying, your body's irrelevant, it's, it doesn't matter. You could sin with it sexually, and that sin won't touch your soul, because you're only sinning with your body. And, and when, when we die, you leave that sinful body behind and your pure soul can go to be with the Lord. And if you listen very carefully to that argument, you'll hear a, a snake's tongue hissing as a, a, a sound right in the middle of that. In other words, this is a very devilish doctrine. Very devilish idea. That's one idea. The other idea is your body is so evil. Your body is so bad. Your body is so wrong. Think about that argument, by the way. What is it saying about how God, the creator, has designed us as human beings? This is also a devilish comment. Your body is so evil. Punish it. Starve it. Cut it. Do whatever you can. Despise your own body. Now you look at me like, oh, Andrew. As if people would despise their own bodies. As if they'd say, I don't know, surgically want to transform their bodies into something they are not. See what I'm saying? You hear what I'm saying? And Paul is saying, no, your body belongs to the Lord. God has given you a body. We live in a sin-stained world where our desires have been corrupted. Our appetites have been corrupted. Has anyone ever been at a party and you've had one too many pieces of cake? I'm not looking at anyone because... I don't think I've ever had one too many pieces of cake in my life. That's sarcasm again, by the way. So Paul says this in verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, get, get this flow of thought. 
Food is meant for the stomach, stomach meant for the food. Don't commit sexual immorality because your body belongs to the Lord because the Lord raised up Jesus. What? What's, what? what? What's the, can you draw, like, what? Where are you going? This is the point. If our bodies didn't matter, why did God the Father raise Jesus' body back to life? And the answer is because our bodies do matter. They are sacred. They are holy. Now, don't, don't ask silly questions of me after the service. Like, well, does that mean I, I, can, I can, should I get tattoos? Or should I get piercings? I don't, I, quite frankly, I don't care on the outside. I don't care. There are some who, anyway, no. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about us appreciating God has given us a body. And if you have arms and hands and fingers and toes that work, be thankful. Because there are many people that aren't even born with those things. There are many people who aren't born with the capacities that God has originally designed people to have. And here's the good news. In the resurrection, they will. The lame will walk. The blind will see. The deaf will hear in heaven. And those without limbs will be fully limbed. So when it says, and God raised up the Lord, raised the Lord, and he will raise us up by his power. It means after we die. That's why the early Christians were so convinced of this, they wouldn't cremate. Because they actually really thought that the end was coming and that the physical bodies that were put in the ground would be restored. We now know that the very thing that makes our bodies our bodies is not the carbon, but it's the DNA that instructs the carbon how to assemble to make you you. And your DNA, the code of your DNA, is not embedded in the cells. It doesn't start there. It starts in your soul, an immaterial part of you. And here's where C.S. Lewis's comment is profound when he said this, we do not have a soul. You may have read that by C.S. Lewis. We do not have a soul, C.S. Lewis said. We are a soul. We have a body. The real you is your soul. And the Bible uses the word soul to mean the spiritual part of you and the physical part of you. So when it says God created Adam, man, the first man, there's his body. And he breathed the ruach of life, the spirit of life into Adam. And he became a living Hebrew word, nefesh, which is soul. When when the physical carbon of Adam was there, God breathed spirit into him. Body plus spirit equals nefesh, soul. That's why it says on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached, 3,000 souls were saved, body and spirit. And you are created to have a body for all eternity. And the body you will have when you give your life to Christ and allow him to take away your sin, guilt and shame. If you turn to him as saviour, you are guaranteed that you will have a body like his resurrected, glorified body. This is amazing how you can stay seated on that. I am staggered because it's awesome because we will have a body that will not experience pain it will not experience sorrow it will not experience regret it will not be limited by the physical laws of this universe how do we know that 
because they were in the upper room behind a locked door and Jesus appeared in his resurrected body and I'd love to be able to do that. (laughs) The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a statement about the value of our bodies. Our future resurrection, linking those two statements there in verse 14, God raised Jesus, he'll raise us up by his power. That future resurrection is a statement about the role our bodies will play in our eternal destinies. You will take your DNA into your glorified body. How do we know that? Because when Jesus was resurrected, he could show them the scars. And it was his body. But when he was glorified, when he was glorified... We read in in Revelation chapter 1 that John, the disciple that leant on his breast and felt the breath of his nostrils as he asked the question, who will betray you? And Jesus says to John, it's the one that I give this piece of bread. And he gave it to Judas. That's how close John was. John was the only disciple that stayed at the cross when Jesus said, mother, this is now your son. John, this is now your mother. Look after her. He didn't point, of course. And on the Isle of Patmos, John is there in the spirit on the Lord's day, it says, and the ground shakes because it says that when Jesus spoke, he spoke with the sound of loud, crashing waters. And he turned and he recognized, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. But my goodness me. There's something about him now, glowing, (laughs) voice. It's almost as if he's God or something. (laughs) Do you not know, there it is again, in fact, in this half of 1 Corinthians 6, this occurs several times in the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 6, it occurs some four times. Where Paul says this, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You're organically, spiritually connected to Christ. This is where we understand we're a soul. We are a soul. We have a body. That when... I'm jumping ahead. Let me read this and it'll make sense. Shall I then take the members of Christ, that's you and I, and make them members of a prostitute or casual sex, or a one-night stand, or sexual activity with someone we're not married to. Paul's word? No, never. Don't do that. Next verse, Paul says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For just as it is written, The two become one flesh and it means there is an intertwining of body and spirit sexually with another person. Oh man, there's a lot we could say about that, but I just simply want you to hear this. Sex is not trivial. Sex is not flippant. Sex is the the very thing that should husbands and wives should be sexually active with each other. And if you're not married, you should not be sexually active. 
I don't know how I can say that any clearer based on what Paul is saying here. The only thing I need to put a footnote on right now is what if you haven't lived up to that? What if you're going, a bit late now? As we go into the future, it is going to be too late for some. But here's the good news. We go back in the chapter. Paul says, some of you live that way. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality. But it was never your identity. But you've been washed. You've been cleansed. You've been sanctified. Such were some of you. But that's not your identity now. You come to Christ, he gives you a new identity. This is so, so important. Paul says this, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That's what I keep saying, this expression, organically connected to Christ spiritually. Therefore, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And you just need to know, we are going to have dozens and dozens and dozens of people come into this church looking for forgiveness, cleansing, hope and the grace of God. And we're going to give it to them. We're going to dispense it to them. We're going to say, come to Christ. And you can have a brand new identity and a new start. And your sins can be forgiven. Do you not know, verses 19 and 20, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. There are some of us here who need to do more physical exercise, including me. Because this is good for our bodies and it is glorifying to God that we look after our bodies. So these statements by Paul about these issues... They reveal our true identity when we belong to Christ. I've got that word fictively connected to Christ. That means this. When you give your life to Christ, fictive means, it's sort of what Jenny was saying before about being adopted. You become family. Fictively connected means you become family. And it's a, it's a, a family tie stronger than blood. So when you're fictively connected to Christ, you belong to him. He is yours, you are his. Would you please stand? I want to come back after this worship song and I want to pray and I want us to get this. And I want us to understand that there will be people that we will encounter who are, who are hurting and broken and lonely and just hurt and dealing with guilt and shame and we're not here to condemn anyone we're here as one sinner offering a crumb to another sinner and saying I found forgiveness and so can you by giving your life to Christ
God, that you would help us to understand the grace that you've given us, the new identity that you've given us. Lord, help us not to be condemning or condescending of others who have not experienced this grace and this new identity, sons and daughters of God. And Lord, I pray for those who yearn to be beneficiaries of your forgiveness, to be adopted by you, to experience your love and your grace, to have a new start. That right now, a prayer would arise in their hearts that says, oh God, please forgive me. Come into my life and help me to be connected to Christ and help me to live for you. Help me to glorify you with my life. I need your help to do it. I don't think I can do it by myself. You pray a prayer like that, I guarantee you it is a prayer that God will answer. 
And now for us, Lord, as a church, help us to be welcoming, declarers of the truth, but to declare the truth in love, in a way that accepts people. So, Lord, I pray that we might know the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship and power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select Corinthians Part 7 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, sin is an abuse of something that God had designed for a good purpose. So we need to ask ourselves not just is it right, but is it wise, considering that what we do with our bodies is meant to glorify God. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.